Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. This is Karen Trombino with White Collar Briefly. I am a partner in the White Collar and Investigations Group at Perkins Coie. And my guest today is Stephen Ravis, who is currently counsel to the Inspector General at the AmeriCorps. Stephen is also a former colleague of mine and a friend of mine. <laughs> Stephen, thanks for coming on our podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I know, although you are a, a federal employee, I know you would like to provide the standard disclaimer for uh, anything that we talk about today. Yes, thank you. So I'm appearing here in my personal capacity. I'm not speaking on behalf of AmeriCorps OIG, or am I authorized to speak on behalf of AmeriCorps OIG? Okay, understood. Thanks, Stephen. Our topic for today is to talk more broadly about the federal inspector generals. Um, Stephen, in addition to his employment at AmeriCorps, um, was previously uh, in, in the Office of Inspector General at the Department of Homeland Security. And prior to that, Uh, at the U.S. Department of Commerce. He had different roles at each of those entities, and he's going to walk us through that. Um, And then also, I think, for more practical perspective, we're going to hear some from um, Stephen, some insights from Stephen on tips for uh, respondents who are uh, being asked to participate in uh, interviews by the uh, various federal inspector generals uh, for defense counsel who might be representing clients who are in those positions. Um, and also just talk more broadly about uh, the history of uh, the federal inspector generals and their authorities and how they interact with one another. Uh, so to start off, uh, Stephen, I think it would be helpful if you kind of walked us through um, your different experiences, maybe starting at Department of Commerce and what your role was there and, and then moving on as you went to DHS and now AmeriCorps. I'd be happy to. So I started the Commerce Office of Inspector General as an investigative attorney. It was a natural transition for me from um, the law firm life. And there I primarily uh, investigated administrative matters, uh, including um, conflict of interest issues and issues regarding senior officials in the department. I also worked alongside our special agents and assisted them in running their investigations. Uh, during that time, I also spent uh, spent time on a detail with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Virginia as a special assistant United States attorney uh, prosecuting misdemeanor and criminal cases. And then I'm, from Commerce, I moved on to the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General, where I was in uh, the counsel's office as the lead uh, line attorney on the law enforcement side, dealing with law enforcement techniques and the special agent handbook, uh, subpoena clearances, and general issues raised uh, by the agents in the course of their investigations. And then I moved on to AmeriCorps Office of Inspector General, where I currently uh, am employed. And as a counsel to the Inspector General, I'm the primary legal advisor to both the Inspector General and the Office of Inspector General. 
And just going back, uh, I'm curious, your experience as a special uh, assistant to the U.S. attorney, is that, is it common? Obviously, there's a lot, there can be a lot of interaction, you know, there is a lot of interaction between various uh, inspector general offices and criminal prosecutors. Is it common for uh, folks in your position, uh, or at least when you were serving as investigative attorney, um, to do those types of details with uh, U.S. attorney's offices, or is that unusual? My understanding is it's not really common. I sought it out for a couple reasons. The first was because we were we do a lot of in our investigations. There were a lot of referrals to assistant U.S. attorneys, and I wanted to become more familiar with that process, and it would help me understand what I needed to do in my cases uh, when working with the special agents in order to get those cases picked up and prosecuted. I also never had the opportunity to participate in a trial, and I was hoping to get trial work. Unfortunately, during my time, it just didn't work out that way. The cases uh, reached a conclusion without having to go go to trial, but I learned a lot about the process up until trial, and I think I still I still use what I learned from that experience in in my current position and every one of my prior positions. Um, I, I want to um, move towards kind of the the topic that I think I lured you to participate with, uh, <laughs> or maybe you even suggested it, but I think it's a great one, and I think a lot of folks will be interested in it and hearing your thoughts on you know what are kind of missteps or misconceptions that you see, um, you know, from the white collar defense attorneys or um, even just the witnesses that come in to um, OIG interviews and investigations. Um, And I should have mentioned this at the start, but um, obviously you have, you started your, well, you started your law practice first as a federal clerk and then in the private bar along with me um, at a private firm. And then you moved into the, um, you know, the public sector. So you certainly have the perspective on both sides of the aisle. Um, so you can be as brutal as you need to be in helping us understand how we can be better uh, white collar practitioners. On the uh, yeah. <laughs> Happy to do so. I, and I think there are some there are some things that I'll I'll mention that really, I think, help both sides move things along. And, and so I think it's an important mm-hmm. it's an important thing to understand and to consider when you're representing someone who is who is part of an OIG investigation in one form or, or another. Um, so I think one of the first things you, you talked to me about earlier was, you know, when, when you're having a, um, a witness come in, you've asked a witness to come in, uh, this topic of Garrity warnings and what that means and what, you know, how defense attorneys should interpret a Garrity warning. Sure. So a, a Garrity warning is a warning provided. It's similar to Miranda, given to federal employees, and it essentially says that the interview is voluntary. You can leave at any time, but anything you say can be used in a criminal, uh, civil, or administrative proceeding. And we, the trend is to give it, give that warning to everyone, just so everybody's on the same page. That if something. If something does come up, and you never know in an investigation when a witness is going to provide information that that would fall into that category, the investigation wants to be able to use it. There could be, most of the time, there's no chance that's going to happen, but it's important to provide that so everybody knows what what's allowed. And I think it's particularly important in, to let them, to reiterate that it's a voluntary interview so that they can leave. If they want to, I think that prevents problems 
on the back end uh, with individuals saying, oh, I didn't feel like I could go um, or they wouldn't let me go. And I, I think, you know, one of the things you and I had talked about earlier was, you know, are, do defense attorneys maybe read too much into that when you're giving a guarantee warning to their client and potentially scaring their yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm bringing it up is because I, I don't think that it, yeah. <laughs> too much should be read into it. Um, most, or at least the process I've seen in the OIGs that I've been at, it's given ahead of time before the interview. I mean, not just before the interview, I mean, leading up to the interview so that every so that you can read it over. Everybody's aware of, of what it says. It's then reiterated during the interview on the record and then... Um, and acknowledged on the record and then ultimately signed and provided a form assigned and then provided to to the investigative agent um and one of the things i was wondering was if you're if you're asking a witness to come in um do you guys ever negotiate kind of like the equivalent of a queen for a day um proffer agreement um is there that kind of equivalent in, in your toolbox if a client refuses, I mean, usually it's if a, if, a, there's a, if a client refuses to speak, then this only applies to federal employees, then we can provide something called a Kalkine's warning, which compels the individual to speak to the Office of the Inspector General without the fear of having their statements be used against them. Uh, typically, it's very narrow, so it's very clear what the topic is, and if you stray outside that topic, then then there could be uh, an issue. And typically, uh, when before Calkine's warnings are issued, at least in my experience, the agents will go to a prosecutor, talk a little bit about the case and the individual that, that we want to interview, and receive a declination from them in terms of prosecuting that particular individual. And that's just to make sure we keep the case right side up so that we're not running into any territory that might harm prosecuting the case in the future. Yeah, and I think that's probably where you're also maybe being, in, you're, you're thinking on this might be informed by your experience as a special assistant U.S. attorney and not kind of making, making sure the, eviden the evidentiary record that you're getting is probably the best that you could, could work from. Yeah, and sometimes the, the, the AUSAs think of things and uh, and you know that you hadn't thought of, and you say, "Oh, that's right." You know, maybe it's time for me to run down a little bit more before I, I reach that point. Um, so we've moved on to kind of this topic of the client's refusal to speak. Um, and I, I know you me you mentioned that the calc is it Calkines? Calkines warning, yeah. It's used for federal employees. Can it be used for other respondents as well, or no? No, it's it's case law driven specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, related to um, federal employees because I, I think, I don't know the exact quote from the case, but it's, it puts forcing employees, federal employees to speak, puts them between a rock and a whirlpool or something like that, where they have to make a decision to speak and perhaps provide information that's not so helpful or be fired and lose their job. You know, one, one thing to consider when weighing the calculus of having your client come in to participate in a voluntary interview is, I know you, you said it earlier, you could always leave if you don't like the direction where it's going. Um, and you might have the upside of getting a little bit more insight into what you guys are cooking up on your end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I was defense counsel, I'd want to 
I want to come in and find out. I wouldn't want to bar myself from from hearing uh, some the, at least the line of questioning. And it's just also you don't know in what capacity, you know, or what they're going to what the questions relate to. So I don't. I think you do the client a disservice by by not showing up. That is, there are certain caveats, of course, if if the client provides you information uh, and you think that there is some liability there for lack of a better term. I mean, you have to make your professional decision, but I think in a lot of cases, it's worth coming in and talking to the office inspector general. If you refuse to speak, I mean, that sometimes is a red flag. And also in certain instances, it can, it can help further the case because the OIG, uh, depending on the, the particular facts, can go to a assistant U.S. attorney and say, hey, we're investigating this. We really need to talk to these people. And, you know, one or more of them is not going to speak to us. And we can't move any further. In our, we don't know whether it's criminal or not, but we can't move any further without speaking to them. The evidence is trending this way. Can you help us out uh, by taking on the case? And so at times, AUSAs may be willing to open a case, use the grand jury subpoena process and grand jury testimony to have people speak so we can get additional information. Got it. So it could potentially be a strategy that backfires pretty badly um, <laughs> for a class. It's true, but every, every I mean, it, it's so fact-dependent. Sure. And Stephen, this might be a question that, again, is um, too general to too general to be a fair question for you to answer, but is it very, very common or um, perhaps unusual if a, a, if a, um, a witness comes in without representation, legal representation? Um, or does it really kind of, in your experience, obviously this will be anecdotal, in your experience, is it kind of a mixed bag of folks coming in with, or, you know, with an attorney or without an attorney? In, in my experience, far more have come in without an attorney than with an attorney. When I, when I was conducting interviews, I would let them know whether they were a witness or a subject or whether, maybe not a subject, but that their uh, actions were potentially at issue. Not every OIG uh, operates that way, but I found it easier because I wouldn't necessarily have the back and forth of them considering whether they should get an attorney or not, because sometimes just telling them they're a witness is is good enough for them. But I always say you are free to obtain counsel, uh, personal counsel, to the extent that you you need to. You can't, it's not appropriate to bring in agency counsel because they have the interest uh, in their clients, the agency, not the individual. But if they want to bring in counsel um, to feel more comfortable, then we're happy to entertain, entertain that. It made it more efficient because I don't want to have that conversation when they come in and then have to push everything off right. and delay the investigation. Yeah, and I mean, something I continue to hear from clients, um, you know, with a range of sophistication is this concern that if you bring a lawyer uh, or have a lawyer, you know, involve a lawyer in the process that it makes you look guilty. Um, and I always try to, you know, <laughs> uh, dispel that myth. But, um, you know, you and I were talking previously, and I, I know you said in some cases you actually feel like having counsel involved makes the whole process um, a little bit more organized and... Um, productive. I mean, I, I found it ext- extremely beneficial. In most cases, sometimes you have defense counsel who don't, who don't really understand what's going on, and there's a lot of objections and interruptions. But defense 
counsel can really help move the interview along by clarifying questions that the agents or the investigative attorneys are trying to ask that the um, client doesn't understand. So I really, the role was really, you know, more than a potted plant sitting there, but not interrupting and, and slowing down the investigative process or, or becoming a nuisance. Uh, Stephen, you know, one of the things you explained to me earlier was your cases, um, the, the investigations that the OIGs are undertaking might go an administrative route. Um, and certain defense counsel, perhaps certain respondents might then think that kind of it's game over, it's administrative, I'm in the clear, um, you know, and maybe stop giving it much attention or concern. And, and is that, can you just talk about that a little bit more from your perspective? Sure, I understand. So I, I, at times, you, you, we do tend to see that uh, it's as if there's no criminal liability, so there's no need to really be concerned with what's going on. But um, it's still worth cooperating, even if you're, you know, on the administrative, you know, on the administrative investigative track, or if you're not necessarily a subject. One, um, optics matter. Some OIGs put out public reports. There's also reporting requirements to to Congress. And so you want to make sure that, you know, you want to keep that in mind. Second, even if it's not criminal, you can still run into other issues like obstruction of justice or false statements. Uh, OIGs use lack of candor a lot, uh, findings of lack of candor. So there there are some implications to, to not participating fully once it looks like it's an administrative case. Even just from your uh, social media feed, I see you're always kind of uh, sharing a lot of the, you know, the big cases that the various IGs are um, are, are bringing uh, or coordinating with Department of Justice to bring. It's certain, like, not surprisingly, we're seeing a lot, it looks like a lot in PPP fraud cases, um, a False Claims Act type of cases. Is that kind of the trend that you see um, kind of across the agencies picking up? Well, that, I mean, that was the first part of the you know, first money out for the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you're what we're now seeing uh, is sort of a ramp up in those prosecutions. I think the DOJ has announced that it has like 100 plus prosecutions that are finalized or near final. It's like $350 million at issue, right? And that's just within, I mean, now just a year. Or less than a year, because I don't remember exactly when the when the uh, the PPP went out. But you're going to see a you know we're obviously starting to see a trend where there's clearly fraud happening, and um, and the prosecutions are just starting to catch up. And now on top of that, you have more money going out with the American Rescue Plan to to agencies and to the you know and through their programs. So I this is going to be a trend for quite a while and and OIGs have to ramp up start focusing on this you know that they're doing they were they were doing their normal work and probably understaffed and now they have to turn and add this other facet to their to their role and hopefully receiving more money to congress from congress to to perform those duties but there is definitely a focus on on all this pandemic money that's going out yeah and it sounds like even in some of these you know we think about low dollar numbers in, at stake with some um, some of these like uh, misrepresentation cases like or the um, like travel and expense fraud type of reimbursement fraud cases 
Um, but we were talking, you and I were talking earlier about how, you know, those cases, uh, if brought under the False Claims Act, can really very quickly uh, escalate into some big dollar figures in the millions, even if, you know, the underlying violations are, you know, seem like minuscule amounts of money. Yeah, I mean, you have, you know, each false statement can can add up. You have damages and, and the penalties on top of that. So uh, that's something that at AmeriCorps OIG, um, if you've seen from any of our press releases, we're starting to, to have more of a focus on. Um, and it, it, there is a return on investment there on cases that we may not be able to get get prosecuted, but there is some some liability and some wrongdoing. And, um, and the you know that and that needs to be addressed. Thankfully, the U.S. attorneys' offices have been very helpful, and 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 been willing, very willing to to help us, particularly at AmeriCorps, ensure that the money that we put out goes to the communities that need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's an interesting, you know, just from a deterrent standpoint. If you guys aren't pursuing those types of cases because it's, you know, maybe at, you know, at its under the underlying violation violations might not be huge dollar numbers, but does that set a a tone and an expectation that you know if you weren't addressing it would, you know, potentially progress to, you know, a larger type of misrepresentations that, um, you know, could really cause funding issues for the for the entity. Yeah, and I mean, and and. Um there's no way to catch. I don't think it's possible to catch everybody, but uh, it's a lot easier to stop the the conduct when you when there's a deterrent. And the more that each OIG is able to either prosecute or um, obtain civil settlements, the uh, and the and the more that spreads out within the the various uh, stakeholders um, through their through their programs the better off each agency is. When you guys make criminal referrals, do you stay involved till, you know, the the end of that process? So the main communication usually goes between the well, I mean, I guess in what position in what capacity are you are you talking about? Are you talking about so as an investigative attorney, I would uh, I and the agent would be talking to the assistant US attorney uh, on a frequent basis, mm-hmm. in my capacity now, it's the agents that are doing most of the day-to-day communication, and I'm involved in, in more of the high-level calls. Right. Yeah, I guess that what what I was curious about is once you make the criminal referral, or once your office makes the criminal referral, is that kind of you hand it off and you don't really see it again, and until maybe a press release comes out, or you you might stay involved in the background. Oh, I understand what you're asking. So when you make the criminal referral, if if a prosecutor picks up your case. They, you are then, you as the agent uh, or anybody on the, on the investigative team is then used by that prosecutor to continue to run the investigation. The difference is that the prosecutor is now calling the shots. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so it's no longer and the OIG chain of authority. Got it. And your agents are obviously not FBI agents, right? So would your agents then be working with FBI agents in coordination or maybe not? Uh, sometimes. We... Uh, our agents have law enforcement authority, so they have badges, they carry guns, they can arrest individuals. Not all of the OIGs have that authority, um, mm-hmm. but I think most of them do. And so it depends on the case, where you could have a, a very, um, you could have a high profile case, or a case where you, the OIG doesn't have a lot of manpower, and you, you could ask the FBI to assist, or just 
because of the the topic uh, or the individual, the FBI is involved. Uh, but then in some cases, the OIG agents are the only ones running the investigation. So you're at the AmeriCorps. It sounds like you have law enforcement agents um, and Commerce did as well, right? Department yes. of Commerce. And obviously, yes. I assume DHS. DHS has a, has a lot. <laughs> a nice cadre. But it sounds like not all not all offices do. Um, yeah, there, there are smaller ones that don't, and those may or may not be tr- trying to get the law enforcement authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you need to show a need. for. I've never been on the the end where I've been trying to get law enforcement authority. I've always joined an OIG where they've had the mm-hmm. authority. But you, you have to show a need that you for that authority. They just don't give it away. And there's a number of hoops to, to jump through with the uh, Department of Justice. And do you, I mean, with some agencies, like, I, you know, some of the financial regulators, short of a subpoena, you know, we're seeing more and more that we'll get requests, you know, voluntary requests for information. Is that something that the OIGs tend to use as well? Or do you guys really focus more on subpoenas? I can only speak to the the agencies or the OIGs that I worked for. But I think in those instances, the subpoenas are the preferred route. When, for instance, uh, AmeriCorps has a lot of grantees, sometimes it's just easier to send a subpoena um, so they have something on their on their plate to respond to rather than I think voluntary requests there's a lot of back and forth and uh, in my opinion it's just easier to, to send an administrative subpoena yeah I mean I think at some agencies you see it because otherwise they have to go up a chain for approval to do it and it, it's just easier to kind of start the process with a voluntary request but certainly different with a smaller OIG I agree yeah um, and then moving on to AmeriCorps as you said you're serving more in that council function do you still get involved with investigations? I'm involved in investigations mostly to the extent that I'm working with the agents and the investigative supervisory team to ensure that the cases are being run in a way that we're setting ourselves up for success in the referral process, both criminal referral and civil referral. Got it. So it's, it's almost, I mean, do you guys kind of operate from a handbook the way that you might see like the U.S. Attorney's Manual where there's policies and priorities and uh, practices that are really what your agents or attorneys are then instructed to kind of comply with? Or is it a little less formalized than that? No, we, we have an investigative manual that they that they follow. Um, and there's been an investigative manual at every OIG at which I was employed. And I mean, the it might it might actually be necessary or required under um, the AG guidelines for the Office of Inspector General, but it also makes good sense. The law enforcement personnel need to be held accountable and need to follow processes, and um, and the processes are clearly laid out in the investigative manual slash, slash special agent handbook. Mm-hmm. And how similar or dissimilar are those handbooks across the different OAGs? I assume that you each have your own authority to create your own? Yes. Each OIG creates their own. I'm, I'm sure there is some sharing of manuals, but the processes for a small OIG are completely different than the process necessary for a, um, a larger OIG, like the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General, both in terms of the steps of approval and the areas that you're um, that you cover. So, since we have less agents, the approval line is different. We're also not 
running the same types of cases that the Department of Justice's uh, Office of Inspector General is running. In terms of uh, kind of my question about potential coordination or you know, sharing of best practices among the OAGs. I, I'd like to know a little bit more about the Council of Inspectors General, which I think you said is pronounced SIGI. SIGI, yes. Can you just talk a little bit about what SIGI is and, you know, what, how, how you, how the various offices of uh, Inspector General kind of interact with SIGI or through SIGI? Sure. So uh, there was a body uh, in existence before 2008, but the 2008 IG Reform Act um, created SIGI, and uh, and its mission is essentially to address integrity, uh, effectiveness, econ- economy issues, and increase professionalism within the office of inspector offices of inspector general by developing policies and standards and approaches. Um, and to aid in the, uh, w- one of the lines is to aid in the establishment of a well trained and highly skilled workforce in the OIGs. So they, I mean, essentially what they do is they develop plans for coordination, coordination of government-wide activities to address fraud, waste, and abuse, including interagency and inter-entity audits and investigations and inspections. So it's, a, it's an interesting setup where you have, this, you have this body that is gathering best practices, but there are many IGs and there can be disagreements within Siggy as to initiatives and approaches. And every OIG that I've experienced and I've heard about acts or operates a little bit differently. And so, um, and the IG Act is not as specific as one may like. And so there's there's some wiggle room for, for IGs to operate differently. I'm also curious, Stephen, I mean, we're hearing more and more about, um, you know, Parallel actions um, coming from the federal level and the state, you know, the various states. Is there is there coordination between, in your experience, between the federal um, OIGs and state OIGs? I, so in my experience, there has not been that much coordination. I, I think it it probably is more of a function of the the state OIGs not being as as fulsome as as federal OIGs, but I. I have heard about more interactions with state entities, not necessarily state OIGs, to develop relationships with the sharing of information that could possibly be used to for proactive investigations, or just because they're they're trying to fight the same the same fight on a particular topic. I mean, could you say broadly speaking? I mean, I this is just as an outsider's perspective. It feels like, <laughs> and as defense counsel, it feels like we're hearing more and more about. OIG, federal OIG investigations. I, I'm wondering if, from your perspective, is there kind of a movement towards more funding, more ex- expansion of the federal o- offices of Inspector General? Maybe it's just the type of cases that are coming out more that we're hearing, you know, about more activity. But I'm just curious to know if, even from like a resources perspective, are you seeing any kind of trend in the last, you know, five to 10 years? Well, from my experience, uh, it seems like under. Michael Horowitz's leadership, uh, who is the uh, DOJ Inspector General, and I think he stepped down as chair of SIGI recently. But under his leadership, SIGI became a more cohesive unit. I think there's been more interaction between the OIGs, and I think that's that interaction has helped the OIGs as a whole step up and um, 
use each other's resources, whether it's training or the sharing of best practices to produce more in terms of the mission of fighting or uh, detecting fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, in terms of funding, I, I can only I mean I can only imagine that more prosecutions and civil settlements and more good work coming to light uh, increases the chances of more money being given to to offices of inspector general and more money going out to the agencies or additional money going out to the agents the agencies would would really dictate that more money would need to go to the OIGs to help combat fraud waste and abuse with that additional money I mean, I know this is hard to say, maybe at a general speaking level, because there's so many different IGs, but for the most part, are IGs all in their offices all sitting in D.C. versus, you know, across the states? So hard to say. The ones that I'm I'm not, there's 74 or 75 offices of Inspector General. The ones that I'm aware of all have headquarters in and around the D.C. area. The bigger ones have offices all over the place. So satellite offices. I can't say whether there there's some that are based somewhere else, but I think it makes sense given the relationship with Congress and the agency, their agency, that they be closer to D.C. That said, if the agency is based somewhere else, then I think it's more likely the OIG would be based there as well. I was curious because we've, you know, I've, I kind of have conversations with um young lawyers who are potentially interested in pursuing, you know, the, f- the government path and investigations. And so we, of course, we always talk about the potential to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, but something I've also been talking to more, more of them about is our offices of Inspector General. And I, I guess one of the questions I'm hearing from the sh- folks in Chicago is, is that even a possibility if I don't live in D.C.? And even if the IGs, I guess, sit in are headquartered in D.C. or the D.C. area, are you aware of opportunities kind of for investigative attorneys outside of the D.C. area or for, for the time being, it, does it still seem to be kind of a, if you want to do this kind of work, you pretty much have to be in D.C.? I think D.C. is probably your best bet. And the investigative attorney position is fairly new within the OIG community within the last, I'd say in most places within the last 10 years or so, there have been some agencies like NSF, OIG, the National Science Foundation that have had them for a while, but there are a lot more that are starting to open up shops that are doing um, investigative attorney work. I think for the large OIGs that have satellite offices, there's a good chance that some of those offices will have attorneys. I know, for example, NASA has an attorney in Texas at what was a Johnson Space Center or, or whichever space center is there in Texas. It's, and that's not particularly a large OIG. But uh, so I, I would think that HHS, for example, has attorney positions in other places. But but you should be able to find that. I mean, a good resource is USA Jobs, which will which would post all those all those positions. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for participating in, the, in this podcast. Um, it's fun for me to see you. Like I said, I, I watch your, your social media feeds and, and you're such a cheerleader for the OIG community. And I, it's exciting to see the cases that you guys are, are bringing and um, you know, how much hard work is going into 
into the you know, elimination of waste, fraud, and abuse uh, on, the, on behalf of the American taxpayers. So um, thanks for your service. Thanks for participating in the podcast and for you know, hopefully helping educate us on the, on, in the private sector a little bit more about um, helping our clients best when they're, when they're interacting with the various OIGs and, and these types of matters. My pleasure. I, I mean, I really enjoy the Office of Inspector General community. It's, it's a large community, but feels quite small. And, you know, I hope, hope I was able to be helpful to your listeners. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.